Hello and welcome to What Were You Thinking? Today's guest is Baroness Sugg. Now, Liz Sugg, you'll probably know from her time working for David Cameron because she worked for him for over 10 years as head of operations. And this meant that she was responsible for ensuring all the PM's activities, announcements, trips and campaigns ran smoothly. So no mean feat. And she also led the preparation of key international meetings hosted by the UK, including the G7 in 2013 and the NATO summit, which is particularly relevant to this year as we are hosting so many summits. Since becoming a life peer, she has served the government as WIP, Transport Minister and Minister for Overseas Territories and Sustainable Development. In her podcast debut, Liz gives us a rare insight into the life at number 10 and also why she decided to resign as minister last year. This episode is supported by One, a global movement campaigning to end extreme poverty and preventable disease so that everyone everywhere can lead a life of dignity and opportunity. Whether lobbying political leaders in world capitals or running grassroots campaigns, One puts pressure on governments around the world, including here in the UK, to shape policy solutions and funding decisions that save and improve millions of lives, particularly in Africa, as well as empowering citizens to hold their governments to account. One's supporters are from across the political spectrum and are crucial to this work. The One campaign is strictly non-partisan. It does not solicit funding from the public or receive government funds. And quality education for all is a priority issue for One. And this year, One is shining a spotlight on the global learning crisis. Now, this is an issue that is particularly close to my heart this year, as I am a UK champion for GPE. Because before COVID-19 hit, there had been significant progress increasing the number of children attending school. However, 90% of children in low-income countries could not read and understand a simple story by their 10th birthday. This is a critical milestone at which children transition from learning to read to reading to learn. And when met, it sets millions of children up for a better life. And it is a moment that helps create the doctors, nurses and teachers of the future. The months of lost learning caused by COVID-19 have exasperated this global learning crisis. And millions of children, especially girls, are at risk of not returning to school. And this year alone, 70 million children, over half the world's 10-year-olds, could lack the expected basic literacy skills. To stem this hidden crisis, one is calling on world leaders to take action at the UK-hosted G7 in June and the Global Education Summit in July. Specifically, all governments, including the UK, must step up their investment in quality education. A fully funded Global Partnership for Education, GPE, will enable a further 175 million children to learn over the next five years. To find out more and if you want to get involved in this campaign, visit one.org. Liz Sugg, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? I'm really thrilled to have you on. And there's so much I'd love to cover with you in this conversation because you have, and we'll come on to this later, I'm sure, but because of your previous job, you have traveled so much and seen, I'm sure, been in many fascinating rooms, experiences, places, and I'd love to explore a lot of that with you today. So why don't we start off by tackling the place as to you know what place has impacted your thinking and 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 life well it's great to be here Laura thanks for inviting me on this is my first podcast Ah. (laughs) so place right this is a really tough one to start with um I've been so lucky uh in uh my jobs in my life that I've you know been able to to travel around the world and see incredible places um and sometimes, you know, you rush around from here to there and, uh, and, and you sort of see the inside of motorcade, motorcade convoys and, and inside of hotels and you kind of barely know where you are sometimes. But there are moments which stay with you uh, and which you remember. Uh, and so I think place wise, it's a, a number of, of many different places where you get that moment which kind of hits you and, and cuts through to you. Um, and just to you know, give you some examples, um, you know, when I worked in, in opposition for the Conservative Party, we did some visits uh, in international development and we visited Darfur in Sudan 
uh, where the moment I really remember is sitting uh, in a tent uh, with a group of women uh, who were telling us their stories of what they'd been through um, and meeting the uh, humanitarian aid workers who were distributing UK funded aid, so basic sanitation and water and food to those people. Um, or in Rwanda, where uh, mm. I visited with a, a, a project Umubanu, which is a which was a, a project set up by Andrew Mitchell for conservative volunteers to travel to Rwanda um, and train teachers and doctors and, and health centres. Um, and again, seeing the, the work in partnership there uh, with people in Rwanda uh, really, really hit home. So that, that was such uh, a cool programme, actually. I mean, just yeah, that I, I had the real privilege of not doing the whole week because I, I went sort of in work capacity with my former boss in Tanzania and it's just amazing isn't it seeing it and some of these people that you then see in Westminster <laughs> in this very different setting all of a sudden and it's, it's just quite surreal it's yeah really, it's a fantastic really program you know you had MPs there you had doctors and dentists mm. and teachers um, and it left oh. a, a real legacy I think uh, you know there was a, a schools built and health centres built and community centres built and and as you say there's many many serving MPs and many party members who have got really uh, you know whose lives frankly were, were changed by the experience they had on on that project. Mm. Amazing. So yeah, so you so you've you've um <laughs> traveled traveled loads. And so when do you think is that really where you sort of developed a passion for international development, do you think? I think so. And I think those were the visits, as I say, which really kind of um hit hit home to me, you know, whether that be in Helmand in Afghanistan, you know, wow. seeing the work of the International Development Department there on the on sort of peace building there. Or seeing the impact of the UK being a development superpower at some of the international summits, uh, which either we hosted here in the UK uh, or we went to overseas and seeing what that enabled um, the UK to be able to do because of its position uh, in international development. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and it is, it is true, I guess, and, and it's not often spoken about I guess by government but the UK is considered um, development superpower as some people call it. That was one of the things I was most proud of actually when I was minister at at, uh, DFID uh, and uh, FCDO. Um, You know it was really clear uh, how what high esteem the rest of the world held the UK in you know and that's partly because of the money we spend let's be honest about that and what that (laughs) money was able to actually achieve but also the expertise um, and the specialism that we brought along as well. You know, we have incredible development experts all around the world who are the go-to people. Uh, you know, if you, want to, if you want to invest in education or in health systems, you know, the people from the UK are invariably the experts in that field. Um, and, uh, and that was really clear either traveling the world or having bilateral conversations with other ministers, that kind of high esteem that the UK has held. And so just out of curiosity, because you, you, you had such a unique position when you, you know, your role in number 10, but that you got to go to these summits and, you know, like the G7, G8, NATO, I mean, the list probably goes on and on and on. <laughs> Did you feel that the difference, you know, the fact that the UK spend 0.7 on, on aid and, and also, of course, our defence commitments really helped in those situations or is that is that sort of overblown or is that actually something that you can sort of get a sense of when you're there I think I you know I think it certainly does help um and you know I'm thinking back to the summits which you know we I worked on when I was in number 10 and we hosted here in the UK so uh, the G8 uh, in Dochern or the NATO summit in Wales And I do think, I mean, look, the UK is a fantastic country. We have a brilliant international reputation, you know, regardless. However, I do think the fact that we are one of the few countries to spend 2% of our income on defence, and also we were one of the countries to spend 0.7% of our national income on international development, it did enable us to have a stronger voice at the table. It did enable us to help bring people together. 
Uh, and I think you saw that through some of the successes of the NATO summit or the G8 summit on tax evasion and transparency. It means that we can speak with a strong voice. We can lead by example. We can encourage others to do the same and we can encourage others to sort of drive up their involvement, which is you know, what we did in, in NATO in, in Wales, where we got everybody to actually sign up to the 2% pledge. And we're seeing increases in, in international development spending from, from wealthier countries around the world. So yes, I do think it gives us a, a a stronger voice uh, to bring people together to try to achieve what we as a country want to achieve. So coming back in a way to also our our national interest on, on the world stage to, to an extent, they kind of go hand in hand I guess. I think so and you know we, we all want to see a, a more peaceful and more prosperous world you know and that is uh, because that's the the you know morally the the right thing um, but also it's also firmly in our national interest and I think if you look at any of the challenging issues we are facing uh, as in the world today and in the country today they are inherently interlinked uh, I'll give you two examples you know first of all at the front of everyone's mind COVID-19 uh, and the global pandemic. I mean, if anything, that just shows how completely interconnected the world is. Yeah. And we know that the pandemic is not over here in the UK until it's over everywhere. Uh, and that, you know, is such a good example of how we as a world need to work together in our own interest. Uh, and then the second is climate change, you know, the other massive challenge which we are facing um, and what we're going to do uh, in order to save our planet. And again, that is impacting people here on the ground in the UK, people care about it deeply here in the UK, and we're only going to be able to, you know, make progress on that if we do it internationally. And you know, the UK is hosting the COP26 summit uh, in November um, up mm. in Glasgow, and that's a really great opportunity for the UK to bring the world together to get kind of ambitious, um, make ambitious progress in order to address the, the the issues of climate change yeah totally totally and I mean it, it is quite the year isn't it for the UK um on the globe, global stage I mean it is I mean I think you know we've got the so we've got the G7 as it is now in Cornwall in June and then as I say COP26 we're also hosting a big replenishment conference for the global partnership for education yeah uh, in order to try to get more money into it into global education so you know it is a it's a busy year for the UK on the world stage and it's a really great opportunity uh, for the Prime Minister um, and the UK to, to make progress in, in areas which we want to make progress in. Um, and so I really hope that, uh, you know, we, we make the most of it uh, and use those opportunities to kind of drive forward action. Yeah, no, totally. And actually, that's really interesting. But you mentioned um, the Global Education Summit or the replenishment for, for GPE because you were the first envoy for girls' education. Is that right? I was indeed, yes, the first Very special envoy, uh, first UK special, special envoy for girls. Envoy. <laughs> Just don't I love special, it. <laughs> uh, for girls' education, uh, which was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I was a minister at, at FCG. I did a lot of work on gender and on the rights of women and girls. And the Prime Minister is absolutely passionate about getting every girl in the world 12 years mm. of quality education. Uh, yeah. So, yes, I was the, the first, uh, first special envoy. Um, and I think, you know, that was... Um, a great role. I mean, I'm a passionate believer in the importance of education. I think the world would be a much better place if you educate every girl. And if you want to, you know, that's going to help solve some of the you know, massive problems which we which we see in the world. Um, and so that was a great role, helping to sort of set really ambitious global targets, which hopefully we'll get the rest of the world to sign up to at the G7 and other places. And also working through the plans to deliver them. Um, and, you know, COVID-19 has completely you know set us back years sadly on many development issues including education you know we've seen the world's children out of school both here in the UK and and all around the world um, and uh, you know we've really got to make sure that we are investing in education in order to see the progress um, of getting girls back into school and getting girls staying in school and getting girls learning we know that that's going to help increase earnings uh, future earnings we know that it's going it's got huge health um, uh, improvement implications um, and so budgets at the moment are being squeezed around the world because of the pressure of covid yeah. but covid also as well as a health crisis is an education crisis so we've really got to try to 
focus um, the uh, the world on the importance of maintaining and hopefully even increasing investment in education. It is interesting. Well, it is just really sad to to see you know the effects of of things that might not always make it into the news because it's all about you know COVID and the health implications. Mm. I think, but, and and of course, everybody's you know immediate reaction is health, uh, given that COVID is a health crisis. But as you say, there are this you know the 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 secondary impacts of COVID are going to be felt for years, if not decades. And I think particularly for women and girls, we saw after Ebola. Uh, the amount of girls who got pregnant and weren't able to return to school, uh, you know, if they're out of school or, you know, because of the terrible kind of financial shock, which lots of families uh, are facing, lots of girls are having to do kind of either unpaid care work or going out to work. And so, you know, we are, it's it's really concerning um, whether girls are going to be able to return to school as, after they reopen. Yeah, no, absolutely. So before we go into... Um you know person and object and things I just wanted to just talk a bit more about um this because you know what we haven't really touched upon is how you've just taken a very principled stance on all of this (laughs) by um putting um, your money where your mouth is by you know resigning as minister over the issue of of 0.7 and 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 dropping it so it'd be a bit remiss not to not to talk about that and um, yeah, I just wondered, you know, what were your thoughts at the time and now and, and you know, why did, yeah, why did you make that? You know, well, um, I think, yeah, I said before, I'm, I'm really proud of the UK's position and role uh, in the world. Um, and I think, you know, it's it, it was a source of great pride that the UK is a development superpower and contributes so, so much to the world and has helped save and, and change millions of lives and also been able to help bring the world together to, to make progress in the areas which I which I really care about. Um, and, you know, I, I'm afraid I just completely disagreed with the decision to, to cut our spending from 0.7%, so from 70p and every £100 of our income. Um, and I know we are all facing really tough times here in this country uh, and around the world. And I know that, you know, it's it must be incredibly difficult to be sitting in the Treasury trying to make the, the mm-hmm. figures add up. Um, But I mean, the first thing I would say is because we spend a percentage of our income, that percentage has already decreased because of the shock to the economy. So there was already a big cut in international development spending uh, as it was. Um, But I also think it's more important than ever to be fulfilling our commitment, our promise that we made to the poor people in the world uh, to to spend 0.7 because of the impacts of COVID-19. So it's needed more than ever. And you're seeing other G7 countries step up and increase their spending on international development. Um, And I just, I'm afraid, just completely disagreed with the direction of of reducing our, our spend on international development. And I do think it undermines our efforts this year, you know, to promote Global Britain, to host a successful G7, to host a successful COP26. And I do think it will diminish our our power to to influence other countries to do what we think to be right. Um, And so ultimately, you know, I I loved my job as a minister. Um, It was an incredible privilege to to do. Um, But ultimately, you know, as a minister, you have to be able to support and defend the government's position and I just was not able to to do that uh, on this decision yeah that makes a lot of sense and what you just alluded to I think is is probably often often forgotten because it's it's what happens behind the scenes but your your link between the success of the G7 and COP26 with with that decision is I'm guessing because behind the scenes leaders and ministers are are traveling or normally traveling the world and sort of lobbying and trying to influence other governments to mm. to step up so you get the right outcomes at these negotiations and and you're just a slightly more weaker position do you think that's what I, I think yeah I think that's fair I mean I think as I say it, it has damaged our reputation internationally there's no getting away from that you know we have been known uh, as the country one of the countries which kind of keep our promises both on our defense spending and our international development spending and and people you know look, look up to us for that uh, other people who spend the same are very pleased that we do that and it does give us a, a unique position uh, in order to be able to bring people to the table and so I'm afraid, you know, the, the change in, in that commitment and the breaking of that pledge 
um, has damaged our reputation internationally. And that, of course, is going to, to have a knock-on effect. Look, we do still spend significant amounts of money, which is, is great. But, you know, if you think, let's take COP as an example. We have the president of COP, you know, traveling the world, trying to challenge other governments to come up with ambitious pledges uh, on carbon reduction for COP26. And that's absolutely what you should be doing. But he's going to African countries where we are pushing them to come to the table in Glasgow with ambitious pledges. At the same time, we are cutting our support to those countries by over, you know, 50, 70 percent, you know, by hundreds of millions of pounds in some cases. And some of those projects are related to climate. And so I can't help but feel it is a bit hypocritical in that we are going to them saying, please do more in this area, going to low income countries who are already massively struggling, you know, throughout the pandemic who aren't able to do the really welcome things we've done here in the UK like the furlough scheme and the support for for you know lots of different sectors uh, so we're going to those countries saying you need to do more you need to spend more money on climate you need to invest in green technology you need to stop uh, you know using this fuel whilst at the same time we're saying well actually you know we're removed we're cancelling lots of programs which we do with you you know which are helping on climate change and adaption um, adaptation and resilience and so I just you know we, we're trying to present a kind of united front so we're trying to have a global Britain and it just feels to me as though we are saying one thing with one hand and taking away with the other. So do you think that the party or you know the government leadership underestimated how the parliamentary party and also sort of the conservative party as a whole actually membership would react to the announcement of cutting 0.7 so i definitely think we need to do a better job of explaining why spending 70p out of every 100 pounds of income is the right thing to do why it's in our national interest why it's going to benefit the uk as well as those less fortunate ourselves around the world. And I do think there has been, you know, there is a, a huge amount of support for it from within our party. Um, that's partly because it was included as a, a promise in our manifesto 18 months ago. Um, but, you know, you see support for it from all parts of our party, from the right, from the centre, uh, from the new intake, from the father of the house. Uh, and I think, you know, the parliamentary party are uh, would like to see as to get back to 0.7, um, ideally this year, but if not, as soon as possible. Yeah. So Liz, moving on to um, person, who would you say has had a real impact on, on your thinking and, and, and politics and, and just, you know, more, more generally? Um, it will have to be David Cameron, um, <laughs> who uh, I worked for for many, many years and kind of got me really into politics. I was into politics before um, and uh, and, did, and was working for the Conservative Party. Um, but um, I first started met David as he, when he was standing for leader, actually, and started working on his leadership campaign uh, and then carried on uh, working for him for well over a, a decade uh, in opposition um, and in Downing Street. And I think, you know, for... Um, and. and he, he is the person who kind of probably most shaped my um, both my enthusiasm for politics uh, and also that, you know, my politics itself. Um, I think, you know, lots of politicians get a bad rap, don't they? And um, I think, you know, the vast majority of people who go into politics do it for the right reasons uh, and they do it because they want to make a difference. Um, and it was fantastic to work for someone like David who, you know, cared so much about his job and what he wanted to achieve. Um, and was lucky enough to, to, to do that for, for many years. I yeah. also, you know, he also was the, was the prime minister who bought in 0.7% um, and, uh, and finally kind of fulfilled that, that commitment. Many prime ministers uh, beforehand, had, uh, including Tony Blair, had, had said they wanted to do this, uh, but he was the one who actually delivered it. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting that your trip into Darfur was in opposition already. So you, like you were expecting you know, exposed to. Yeah, and I think those those, those kind of early trips, um, you know, going to places like Darfur, going to places like Rwanda, going to places like Afghanistan, you know, they, they do, well, they certainly kind of shaped my uh, opinion. Uh, and, you know, when you're seeing the, the actual physical difference that UK aid makes in the world, uh, but also the doors it opens and the relationships that it develops and, you know, that benefit the UK in a, in a myriad of ways, you can't help but, but be impacted by that. Yeah. 
And so, so how did you get into politics exactly? So you mentioned you worked for the party already. I, I wasn't actually aware of that, Liz. Yes. Um, so um, I'm not quite sure how I got to politics. Never was really a plan. Um, but <laughs> I studied politics and economics at university. And then I joined a, a, a media company on their graduate trainee scheme. But I just wasn't really feeling very fulfilled in that uh, and sort of knew I wanted to, to do something different. Uh, and so my first job in politics is actually over in Brussels um, in the European Parliament which kind of whet my appetite for it but um, <laughs> but it wasn't really until I started working for David and 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 you know I think he spoke to my type of conservatism um, and uh, that's what really uh, got me obsessed. <laughs> mm. What I think is really interesting because I mean it might be worth explaining very briefly what, what your role was but as head of operations, my understanding is, I mean, you you were involved with everything. See where, well, you, you explain in, in two senses what it is. <laughs> That's a challenge. I've never quite been able to do that. Um, I think basically, yeah, so I was director of operations and campaign. So I was responsible for kind of... Uh, everything which was happening I suppose um, and that's everything from you know hosting those summits which I talked about to uh, organizing mm. foreign trips to to making sure basically that everything works I think uh, and I think the best way I can describe it is kind of a bit of a fixer really it's kind of like this is what <laughs> this is what we want to happen and I just made sure that it happened uh, yeah. it happened right now, um, this might be total gossip, but I remember very long time ago when someone we didn't know each other, someone described me as like she's amazing. She once stopped. I think this was in NATO in Wales. The US pre- president's plane could land, and like, did you ha- did you <laughs> shut down a, a motorway, or is this like I might total well gossip? I might well have done. There's quite a few instances like that which you kind of, uh, in order to make things happen. That was uh, my you- first impression of you, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> No, they've always, they've, they've always been yeah there have been there have been various various moments where you kind of <laughs> I was thinking about one um knowing that I was going to talk to you actually where which was probably one of the scariest ones which I had was trying to extract the prime minister from lunch with president Putin um in Moscow uh and we were we wanted to go and meet with some human rights activists to talk to them uh, obviously about the challenges that they were facing before we left the country uh, and I'm pretty sure uh, the Russian authorities knew what we were going to do. So they were very keen to keep us at this very long lunch uh, where um, they were. And I had to keep going to try to extract the prime minister from his table with President Putin to take him off to meet with these activists. Um, and there, were, there, was a, there was a Russian symphony orchestra playing the Beatles. Uh, and every time I went to try to try to uh, go and extract the prime minister to take him off to this meeting, they'd, str- you know, they'd struck up another tune and President Putin said, oh, you must stay and listen to oh, this Beatles yeah. song or that Beatles song. So that was so you get moments like that where you're kind of having you're thrown into these situations where you are challenged to try to keep every, keep the show on the road. Uh, and you've got to be fairly adaptable and flexible. Uh, to, Extraordinary. To <laughs> I can't. I can't even imagine. Yeah, that's 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 so interesting. Yeah, you so basically you found yourself in a fixer. I like that term, but you basically found yourself in extraordinary situations. But I think what's so interesting is, in a way, that role, uh, and maybe I'm using the wrong words, but you you know you're you're definitely not on the front line. <laughs> it's quite the opposite, right? You're you're catering for. Uh, not catering but you know you are supporting uh, the frontline politician from behind and all of a sudden you now are politician you're in the house of lords you're a minister it's a very different kettle of fish I'd imagine. Uh, Yes it is Uh, and again sort of all very unexpected uh, really and you're (laughs) right you know behind in my previous role in Downing Street very much behind the scenes uh, you know trying to sort things out so that everything works and you know you're exposed to to so much and you kind of soak in so much but it was very much a a behind the scenes role um and then you know to go from that to uh to being a uh albeit albeit a junior minister in the house of lords but to go from behind the scenes to sort of being front and center was was quite you know a a tricky transition Mm. um uh and to find yourself you being the one who are speaking the words and making the case and and making the argument or you being the one who 
who's on the trip as opposed to facilitating it all. So yeah. that was that's been it's been an interesting an interesting uh, move. Oh, I don't um, envy me. the guys organizing your trips. It must. <laughs> I'm a dream. So... I'm a dream to look after. Honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a lot of pressure, I'd imagine, for them. That's it. I'd not thought of that. That's so funny. Well, that's a sort of yeah. Manage. I had to manage my own expectations. Um, in the different, it's a, a different thing. Um, you know, uh, having a, a prime ministerial state visit to uh, to Washington versus a, a, a junior ministerial visit. But no, so it's been it's been a very, um, it, it's it's been a challenge but it's been a, an, an interesting move from from yeah behind the scenes to, to 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 on the front line one of the things that i remember um and we did not know each other well at all at this stage but i remember being very chuffed that you invited me around for tea at the house of laws when you just just sort of been what's the word um, introduced introduced <laughs> And you said to me, you know, you were just considering, but, you know, the things were that you really wanted to focus on, but you've, you were very much, you were very much leaning towards international development and you thought that's what you were going to do. And here you, you know, two years later, or whatever, you were, <laughs> you were Minister of Diffin. I remember that thinking, good, good, good on hand. Well, the House of Lords is a wonderful place full of incredible people and amazing experts in every single thing you could, uh, you could imagine. Um, and so, as a, as I think it's fair to say, a bit of a generalist, uh, you know, it is. It, it was something I, I was carefully considering, but I think the and, and from my previous roles, um, international development kind of stood out as, as 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 I say, we all want to see this kind of more prosperous, more peaceful world. Uh, and I think the work of international development, and the work of the UK, and the role of the UK in helping bring that about. Is is something which I really wanted to to be involved in, um, and you know have been lucky enough to, uh, you know, after when offering to to to, to serve, uh, lucky enough to be able to to have done so um, in 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 a role um, which was everything I I could want to do. Yeah, and so as as minister for Difford, you um, you were part of a transition of a merger so uh for a few months you you then were a minister in the new fcdo right so um i just wondered sort of what yeah what ha- what that was like and sort of you know do you think there are benefits to the merger or are you skeptical or you know what 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 do you how I do think, you feel about that um i mean i wasn't in favor of the merger i'll be honest with you um i can see that there are you know there are you know there are benefits which could be had i a great believer in more coordination um definitely across across government departments um and i think you know one of the one of i visited uh, nepal um and uh they just moved into their new office both this, this is when Difford was a separate department and previously what had happened was at one end of Kathmandu you had the fco and the embassy and at the other end of Kathmandu you had Difford and the International Development Department and, you know it took with, with all the traffic it took hours to get from one to the other which is completely crazy so of course there definitely needs to be kind of more coordination in country I think it's really important to have a, a kind of person in charge so the ambassador or the high commission in charge of all of the aspects of, of HMG um, overseas and that's everything from you know the foreign office to development to trade to defence um, and so, you know, I, I do believe in more coordination, but I think you can achieve that without merging the two departments. And I think, you know, there are the, the huge challenge is that they're very different. Uh, you know, the world of diplomacy and the world of development is, is very different. It's very different expertise. It's a very different job. It's a very different culture between the two departments. Um, and so I think it's a real challenge. And, you know, when the merger happened, it were very clear that wanted to make development the sort of beating heart of the new department and and that's why I you know stuck around to try to try to help that and try to 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 make that work um but uh you know I it's not helped not been helped at all obviously by the massive cut uh, in international development spending because you know all of the the department is now trying to go through the what must be terribly painful process of deciding which life-saving programs we are no longer going to do because yeah, of the very hard parts. Um, and so because of that and because of the merger um, I, I worry about the future of development you know I think the best will in the world 
uh, you know, the Foreign Office, uh, or the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office as it is, there's going to be limited bandwidth for development because of the other issues which they're dealing with, whether that be relations with the US or China or, or whatever it may be. And so with the best will of the world, there is limited bandwidth for development. And I worry that, um, you know, it's going to get squeezed out and that we're going to lose the expertise that we have in it. We're going to lose the people who do so well in it. Um, so, you know, I, I think it can I think it can still work. But I think, you know, there's there's some changes I would want to see um, within the department to try to sort of protect that development expertise and make sure that we don't we don't lose um, what we have. And, you know, I really welcome the prime minister's commitment in the integrated review and other places to get back to point seven. I hope we do that sooner rather than later. But, you know, the, the, the risk is, is that we have that we're sort of decimating, you know, decades of, of reputation and programming through this kind of cut, which is terrible value for money, um, and that we won't be able to get back our ability to deliver um, very quickly. Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned the integrated review and there's also the international development strategy that's coming up. So what do you think the opportunity is around that? Well, I think, you know, there hasn't, because of the merger, because of the cuts, because of COVID, you know, there has been limited opportunity to take a bit of a step back and, and look at look at what, uh, what we do in international development. So I really welcome the international development strategy coming up. Um, looking forward to hearing a bit more detail around that. I mean, if within the department, I would like to see a bit more of a structure around development. Uh, I, I would like to see a minister in charge of development, you know, who's accountable for development, ideally mm. sitting around the cabinet table so that there's a proper voice for development uh, at the National Security Council as well as yeah. at, at cabinet level. I'd like to see us get back to point seven. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I'd like to see, uh, and you know, what flows from the integrated review for the international development strategy. Now, what does that mean from a global Britain perspective? What are the areas which we as the UK want to do more work in. I mean, I personally would like us to do more around vaccines and around health. You know, we already do quite a bit on that, but I think there's more we can do. Mm. As I said before, you know, and, and as everyone knows, unless we vaccinate the world, there's no point just vaccinating this country. And it's been an amazing achievement, the vaccination um, programme here in the UK. But we need to now expand that to the world. And if you look at the wealthier countries in the world we've got about a billion excess doses on order uh, and so I think it's really important that we share those doses and help pay for those doses for for those countries less fortunate than ourselves and that is a excellent example of it being you know the right thing to do but also firmly in our national interest uh, because you know unless till we defeat the pandemic here we're never going to defeat it anywhere um, and then education climate you know I think there's there's lots of kind of areas we I think in the past we've had the we've sort of tried to do lots of things uh, and we do lots of things well but I think I would welcome a bit more of a focus um, uh, on, uh, on on what uh, the UK will be doing in international development going forward. Yeah so moving on to the third and, and often most random of the three questions, what object has had the most impact on your thinking, Liz? So I'm going to go with something called a cyanopress. Um, okay. when, I, when, <laughs> when I was minister, I used to carry this round in my handbag and brandish it as a brilliant example of what UK development can achieve. And what it is, is a very small little self-injectable contraceptive Wow. Um, and so it's a it's a it's an item which the UK in partnership with the US and the UN and the Gates Foundation invested in. And it's a it's a it's a small portable three month contraceptive, which you can which is great for um, low income countries. And what the partnership achieved was reducing the price of this contraceptive. So we're able to mm. get it out to more women uh, and it basically it, it can be used really easily in low-income settings you can give a woman four of these that will last her for a year she can inject herself with it and I think for me one of the things I'm most uh, I think one of our most brilliant achievements as the UK in development is helping women and helping women have control of their own bodies helping women choose when and how many children to have which is going to you know fundamentally change their lives you know I know 
if I didn't have access to contraception, my life would have been very different, as I'm sure yours would have been too, and I'm mm. sure every woman in the UK's mm. would have been too. And the UK is this brilliant leader in contraception and family planning and sexual and reproductive health and rights. You know, we, we help over 20 million women a year get access to voluntary contraception. Um, that's helps stop 6 million unintended pregnancies, you know, millions of prevents millions of abortions, saves tens of thousands of lives. And so I think the, the, the Cyana Press, which we were able to reduce the cost of because of this partnership and this kind of long-term commitment we made to the manufacturer. Uh, and also, you know, with the dist distribution, also working with local governments to get this included in their, in their um, healthcare plans. So, you know, by the end of it, we've, we've put it, given out 10 million uh, of these Cyana presses. And I often think of, uh, I had an amazing visit to Senegal where I went to a rural health centre and met with women who had walked for hours to come to, you know, get access to, to, to you know, modern contraception. Um, and they went back home, you know, with a full pack of the Cyana Press. And I often think of them being able to finally have the ability to make their own choices about their bodies and to use this contraceptive, which we're able to, through UK investment, be able to reduce the price of and get around the world. Um, and, you know, the, how, how that has changed their lives. Amazing. That is a, that is a really cool object. Very cool. Very cool. So, um, Liz, um, wh what are you, what are you up to now? <laughs> but obviously you're, you're, you're beating the drum for 0.7 in international development, but you yeah, know, so I'm, 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 you know, work, working in the Lords and elsewhere, um, to, to keep making the case for, for 0.7. Uh, I'm doing quite a lot of work on women's and girls rights, um, and, uh, and on, on access to, to family planning and contraception. I co-chair, a the all-party parliamentary group on population and development and reproductive health. Uh, I'm also continuing to, to champion education. I'm a champion for the Global Partnership for Education Summit, which I mentioned earlier, which is the big... So am I. I know you are, Laura. <laughs> it's a great hey. role to do. So, you know, we both know how important that's going to be yeah. uh, and how important it is that we raise enough money. And I think, you know, I look back at one of the things that happened when I was minister was the Gavi conference, um, which mm. the UK hosted. And, you know, the UK did a brilliant job of that. And we raised, I think it was 8.8 .8 billion US dollars uh, from the world in order to invest in, in vaccinations. And we all know how important that is. And we were able to do that because we put our money where our mouth is. We came up with a, a big investment ourselves. We did that early and that enabled us to, to, you know, bring the world to the table and get them to invest too. Yeah. And I hope we do the same for Global Partnership for Education. You know, budgets are stretched everywhere. Um, I worry that education budgets are being squeezed. The Global Partnership for Education is a brilliant um, organisation which basically works with governments in country to get them to invest in education and, and they invest too. Um, so we have this great opportunity to raise five billion dollars uh, in June. Um, and I really hope that the UK um, invests uh, and, and makes that announcement early. Um, civil society organisations have asked for a UK contribution of 600 million pounds mm. over five years. Uh, and I hope uh, I know that's going to be a massive challenge because of the aid cuts which we're facing. But I hope that the UK is able to prioritise girls education uh, and, and make that contribution so that we can bring others bring others together on that. And so what has it been like as a as a member of a House of Lords in lockdown? I imagine a lot of your <laughs> colleagues also, you know, very different dynamic um, for members of a House of Lords. And you know, what what have you been up to? I mean, how, how does that work? So like lots of uh, like lots of people, uh, it's uh, we haven't been going into work um, and I've been doing lots of things remotely, which has actually worked really, really well. Um, I've had a very different lockdown experience to the first lockdown, you know, when I was a minister, where I was on Zoom calls from eight o'clock in the morning until God knows at night, uh, which was, you know, really, really busy. So I've certainly had a bit more time on my hand this lockdown, uh, which has been good. I've been doing, I'm training for a marathon. I'm running a marathon, the London Marathon for Sarcoma UK in October. Awesome. Um, and uh, I've also actually just completed my training and started work as a vaccinator. So I've joined the the UK vaccination effort. Um, Brilliant. And uh, yeah, which has been fantastic. So did lots of online training and some practical training. Uh, and now I am uh, fully trained up Jabba. Uh, and that has been a great thing to do. It's a, you know, being able to 
I, I've been doing lots of second vaccinations. So people who had the Pfizer jab, uh, you know, a couple of months ago have been coming for their second vaccination. So that's been a wonderful thing to do because people are so happy uh, to be getting the jab. Many of them are desperate to see their grandchildren. Um, so yeah. that's been a, that's been keeping me occupied as well. That's really, really cool. I love that. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's been it's a great it's a great thing to do. But again, you know, it reminds me of how lucky we are uh, in exactly. the UK to be able to have access to these vaccines. There's some great schemes going on, actually, where people are sort of, you know, get a jab, give a jab, encouraging people uh, to, to donate in order to help people around the world uh, in less fortunate situations than ourselves mm. to, to get a jab. But, you know, it's really I mean, I obviously had huge admiration for the NHS beforehand, but seeing you know that mass vaccination work it's such a such an incredible achievement um for the government and and for the nhs uh to to have done so well on it and uh the sooner we get everyone jabbed the sooner we can help the rest of the world get jabs and the sooner we can get out of this global pandemic here here so moving on to quick fire questions right okay <laughs> so <Pressure. who> would... <laughs> no who would you say is your favorite non-conservative politician well um i think there's some amazing champions for women and girls in the commons um from all sides you know on our side we've got laura farris or laura trott um i think there's some great mps on the labor side as well jess phillips and harriet Harman. but the person i'll probably pick is sarah champion um, because she is such a fierce advocate for, for women and girls in Rotherham uh, and the UK, but also because of the work she does on the International Development Committee um, uh, in order to, to help promote uh, and improve uh, the work we do in international development. So Sarah Champion. Cool. Well, this is her second oh, is call it? out. Who else picked Yeah. Anthony Magnell. Oh, OK. Yeah. Interesting. I need to get you need to get her on if you're listening Sarah yeah. <laughs> um and so what would you say one of your most bizarre experiences has been um and I'm sure they're countless well there <laughs> are countless ones uh, and I could you sort of forget them and then suddenly remember them I mean the the, the trying to extract David Cameron from lunch with Putin uh, whilst <laughs> listening to yesterday played by a Russian symphony orchestra is probably one of them um the other one actually was I was winched onto a submarine in the middle from a helicopter in the middle of the North Sea, uh, uh, that was that was probably the most bizarre experience. So, hang on, what what, <laughs> what does that mean for for people who haven't been on submarines or helicopters? What does that mean being? <laughs> so you basically, so we were visiting, we were visiting a submarine uh, in the middle of the North Sea, um, cool. and and they and they, they dress you up in a bright red flight suit, put you in a helicopter, and fly you off to in the middle of the sea where the submarine has surfaced just to be clear um yeah. <laughs> and then you're attached to a, a winch a, 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 a cable uh, oh. and thrown out of the helicopter door and sort of drop down onto onto the surface of the submarine they hook you they have a hook and they kind of hook you on because it's quite a narrow uh, docking area uh, they hook you on and sort of drop you down I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that my legs did go out from under me because it's pretty terrifying um, and then uh, yeah so we were winched on uh, and then went in the hatch the hatch was closed and then we submerged that was that, that is... was that was a, that was a good day at the office <laughs> that sounds really cool that sounds even like the sort of thing I would probably even want to yeah I'm I'm not that brave but I would want to do that <laughs> I've got a great photo of it I'll send it to you <laughs> <laughs> excellent and um what's the best advice you've ever received go with your gut I think um and I think you know I was really challenged over the decision to resign as minister because you know it was just such an incredible job to be able to do to work in international development as a minister. Um, so, you know, I was pretty heartbroken to, to leave it. Um, but uh, when I asked, and I asked quite a few people's advice about what to do on this one, um, and, and, you know, they go with your gut, go with your instinct. Uh, and, you know, uh, and if you do that, then you will normally, uh, you know, make the right decision for you. Uh, and so, you know, my gut was telling me that I, couldn't stay uh, uh, and defend a decision I so wholeheartedly disagreed with, um, and I, you know, I don't don't regret my decision either. I, you know, regret the decision to to come off point seven, but I I look at some of the impacts of these cuts, you know, to the 
to Yemen, which we saw recently when there's so many millions of people on the brink of famine in Yemen, um, or to some of the contraceptive programs, which I'm desperately worried about, a program called WISH, which provides contraception to women and girls in, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, which is at, at risk because of the cuts. Um, and the idea that I would, you know, be able to, to, to defend that is, is um, yeah. indefensible. Gut feeling. That's, gut that's, feeling. Go with your gut. Go, go with, with your, your instincts. And, yeah. now, and try not to, you know, try not to have any regrets. I, I've nearly forgotten um, one of my favourite questions that I wanted to ask you today, which is involving Larry the cat. Ah, uh, Larry. Because I was reading a book that was sent to me by the wonderful Nicholas Soames called Gatekeeper by Kate Fall. Yeah. And I was trying not to Excellent read about book. politics. I recommend it to all your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> it is very, very good. And anyway, um, you are mentioned an awful lot, by the way, Liz, but, but one thing that I read and I thought was really interesting, funny, was it said that you went to Battersea uh, to pick a cat and came back with Larry. That is true, yes. Is so that there true? Was, there, it is true. There was... Um, Quite a lot of back and forth in Downing Street about whether we could get a cat or not. There used to be cats. And then I think there were, I think it might have been Laura Coonsbow. Someone from the BBC was doing a kind of a, 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 a piece to camera at Six Got News. And there was a massive mouse crawled over the doorstep of number 10, which finally meant that the cat, the pro cat faction in Downing Street could win out. So, you know, quite soon after that, I uh, jumped in the car and went off to Battersea. I was hoping to get a nice, cute little kitten, but the Battersea people who were brilliant were saying, look, come on, this is a, you know, a slightly unique situation. You've got so many people coming in in and out of Downing Street. We don't want to get a little kitten. They might be a bit scared. Why don't we introduce you to Larry? And Larry had been on the, found on the streets of Wandsworth, I think, and was a bit of a bruiser, you could tell, and didn't really, you know, care about anybody else um and so he could look after himself and so we i took i took battersea's advice um and uh and they brought him over a couple of days later and he's you know still there to this day i'm not sure he's the best mouse catcher in the world if i'm honest with you i think it's probably more that his his presence kind of puts them off but no he's he's great i mean he's miserable and very pretty unfriendly but he's a lovely cat and uh you know and one of my other most bizarre moments was introducing larry to president obama um oh gosh one of his his uh one of his aides marvin was completely obsessed with larry he had him as a screensaver in the white house which i always found bizarre and so he said you must you must introduce the president when the president came to visit uh, you must introduce the president to Larry. So I had to, you know, grab hold of Larry. And uh, and I was just, again, just very worried that he was, I was surrounded by secret service agents. And I was very worried that Larry was going to leap out and scratch the president yeah. or something. So I was holding on to him really, really tight and got covered in kind of cat fur. And, but yeah, that was another, that was another moment. But, uh, but yeah, Brilliant. it's lovely. It's lovely still to see pictures of Larry and see him out and about on Downing Street. Yeah. And I'm sure he's, he's very happy there. So Battersea made a good choice. No, he certainly is a bruiser and uh, world-renowned for it. Uh, that's very cool. Very interesting knowing where it all started. Well, Liz, thank you so much. Uh, I feel like we've only scratched the surface because you're, oh, yeah, you, the things you've seen and been involved in, oh, it's, it's, I can't even, well, you have a bit of a sense now, but it's it's remarkable and uh, all your work that you're doing at International Development, it's uh, it's really really inspiring so thank you so much for coming on Liz thank you for having me it's been uh, nice to have a chat thank you for listening and downloading I've got lots of guests lined up already but I would love to know who else you would like to hear from so do get in touch via Twitter I'm on at Laura Round I'd love to hear from you oh and please leave a review and tell your friends and family all about the podcast thanks guys bye <laughs>